Do you forgive me, Papa? Oh, my darling. I'm sure I need your forgiveness quite as much as you need mine. Now, go to bed and sleep well. You may know him from the TV series Downton Abbey or the film adaptation of the beloved children's story, Paddington. Keep your eyes down. There's some sort of bear over there, probably selling something. Good evening. No, thank you. Or maybe from the time he played Robert De Niro's leg. Wait. Okay, that's apparently not a typo. (laughs) Well, however you know Hugh Bonneville, chances are you're a fan. Today, we're revisiting a conversation that my colleague Nyla Boodoo from Axios Today had with Hugh about his long and successful acting career and the memories he's sharing in his new book, Playing Under the Piano, From Downton to Darkest Peru. Nyla and Hugh get into all of it right after this. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us, and remember to join us for future conversations. Just download the 1A Fox Pop app and leave us a message. Hugh Bonneville, welcome to 1A. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. What an introduction. <laughs> Robert De Niro's leg. <laughs> oh, wait, I've got, I've got even more here. For people who don't know you or your work, I wanted to give them a description. This is from your agent, as written in your book. She says this of you. Hugh, this part is you. He's a bitter misanthrope who drinks too much, wafts his own farts around the office, looks a mess, and nobody likes him. <laughs> <laughs> Is that an accurate description? Uh, Only my agent could say that. (laughs) We have to ask my family if that's true. (laughs) You know, when your agent first approached you about the Downton Abbey television series, she said it wasn't her cup of tea. You write about what it was like when you were reading that script for the first time. Can you tell me how it felt reading that and reading the part of the Earl of Grantham? Well, I think what really stays with me as a fond memory of that first encounter with the project was that the characters were so vivid. Uh, they all had their own voice. Very often when you read a script, you can you know, put your hand over the name of the character and, and they, they're all interchangeable. But the, the, all these characters, and bearing in mind there are probably 14 or more speaking parts in that first episode, uh, they were all very vivid and they leapt off the page. And, of course, this was before it was cast, so I, I was just creating these characters in my head and they all were three-dimensional already, like when you read a novel and you cast them in your head, you start seeing people. And then, crucially, at, at the end of it, I wanted to know what happened next. And I think that's exactly what caught on when the show uh, was produced. Add to that, you've got wonderful production values and um, you know the level of detail to which each department aspired was, was really impressive. So... Yeah, my early encounter with it was just uh, wanting more. Of course, Downton has one of these huge cult fan followings. People who love it, love it. You write about how different it is to, for example, play a role in an adaptation of Jane Austen's Mansfield Park. Do you think some of the success of Downton is because it's a period piece that people don't really maybe have preconceived notions or an emotional attachment to? Well, actually, I think it's... Almost the opposite, I think, is because it is within our reach. It's the reach of my grandparents' generation. So it does actually have, I think, more of an emotional connection, perhaps, and more of an emotional resonance than, than say, Jane Austen or Dickens or one of those other famous uh, authors who've been adapted so regularly. Um, plus the fact that this is an, an original story, albeit set in a period, uh, you know, location. Um, 
And uh, I, I think the fact, I mean, you know, the, the fact that throughout the show there were things like the invention of electricity or the, the arrival of the, the, the refrigerator or the telephone, you know, all these sort of nods and winks to our, our modern society that were then newfangled inventions. And there's a charm about that, I think. Um, and on a more poignant note, particularly, you know, in this month of November where the, uh, the ending of the First World War, it was the, you know, we, we did a scene about the very first Armistice, Armistice Day, the, the first time that the marking of the end of the First World War, which is a, it's certainly in Britain every November the 11th is a, is a significant day and is a day to remember all those who've served and fallen. Um, so there were these, actually, these references to a much closer period to our, to our generation, which I think helped it in a way, um, even though it is a period drama. I have a lot of family in the UK, so I've been in um, Britain on November 11th, and it is always strikes me how much generationally even the youngest people to the oldest have this reverence and remembrance of, you know, of Remembrance Day. It's part of the culture. I wonder how you think... Uh, Americans sort of have reacted, though, to like, I feel like Americans have a very deep emotional attachment to all of Downton, even though it's not necessarily our history. That's true, and which was one of the delightful surprises when the show started airing over here, to see how quickly it was adopted. I mean, one knew that there was a certain audience that might enjoy a costume drama on a Sunday night, but the way that it sort of caught fire, really, um, noticeably amongst the younger generation, so many people uh, of, um, you know, teenagers started really engaging with it. And, um, uh, you know, the girls, girls would fall in love with the girls' dresses and they'd, they'd identify with Sybil or Lady Mary or Edith and the sibling rivalry and all that sort of thing. Um, and that was, that was a, a delightful surprise. So, I, you know, we're, we're often asked, why, why was it such a success? And, and none of us have the definitive answer. But I think the fact that it did reach across generations and actually draw families together as, as a viewing experience um, was really quite a, you know, was quite recognizable all around the world, everywhere it's uh, been broadcast, not just in, in Britain and, and uh, the US. Um, we've had messages from as far afield as China saying, you know, how much somebody's family has enjoyed it and what a fascinating um, observation of Chinese society it is. You think, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, because it's it's really a story about a family. Well, it is about family. And I think another thing that resonates is the fact that Julian Fellows, as he said himself, you know, he writes from the default position that people try to be good, even if they do bad things. So there's an ben underlying benevolence. And it's, you know, it moves at the pace of a soap, so it's quite, you know, snappy. And um, there's always a, you know, a character for someone to identify with. And if they get bored, another one will be along in a few, you know, a few, few minutes. <laughs> do you feel like there was a freedom in playing the role of Lord Grantham that you could make it your own, of course, with the direction of Julian Fellows and the writers and everyone else? Mm. Well, the, the writer, I mean, it was one writer, Julian Fellows, who, who, who created the show and uh, ultimately wrote all the 52 episodes. And I felt in very safe hands because uh, he told me that he'd based some of the spiritual side of it or the spirit of the character on his own father, um, with whom he was, uh, you know, very close. And so I felt I was in safe hands there, even though sometimes I would say to Julian, Look, Lord Grantham's emotional IQ is about zero. You know, he's, he's, he can't see these sort of tragedies that are right in front of his face, his daughter in mourning or whatever it might be. 
And I said, for heaven's sake, you know, I want to thump him. Um, and he said, well, don't worry, you know, it's all going to take shape. I've got a plan here. And so usually by the end of each season, uh, Lord Grantham had redeemed himself and he thought, oh, he's not such an oaf after all. <laughs> you say that your book isn't full of tricks of the trade. It's more a series of snapshots I've taken along the way. That's the quote, have you described it? Why did you take that approach instead of something like an actor's guide to acting? Well, because I think that could be rather limiting and, 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 and get put onto the... Uh, you know, textbook uh, shelf in the bookstore, Um, because it really is just a, well, I started out to write a collection of threaded stories uh, through my career, really. And I've been very fortunate to work with some really fun people along the way and have had some, uh, you know, daft experiences, as as we all do in life. But in the theatre profession and the acting profession, they seem to be highlighted even or magnified even more. But as I was writing, I I became more aware that I was writing about uh, my father, for instance, and his journey with dementia and, and, and my my mother and and my late brother um, and their influences on me as a child growing up and um, so I think now I've now it's there and bound and out in print yes it's a it's a fun romp through an actor's career but uh, also it's a a sort of thank you note to my own family for the support they gave me when I was very young. Mm -hmm. We just got a question from Sarah in Syracuse Uh, this is about Downton when the footman William goes off to war the earl offers to shake his hand was his hesitation scripted that scene was all about the breakdown of class differences and seemed very powerful. Does that stand out in your memory? Actually, that's a very good observation. It, we had a sort of house style on a couple of things. One rule was that you didn't shake hands because really the aristocrats are too, you know, too uh, laid back to shake hands. <laughs> or you certainly don't, you know, if, if you offer a hand gesture, it's a significant thing. There's a show we have in Britain called The Great British Bake Off. And, um, also very popular. Right. OK. <laughs> so when, when you get the handshake from Paul Hollywood, that's a real, you know, wow, you've really made it. So I think there was a it's – uh, I'm very interested that your, your questioner there picked up on that. It was a subtle reference to the fact that really that sort of – that social gesture, which we take for granted – wasn't always not prized that's too high a word but it was unusual and i think for the for the earl to step out of the usual and to and to make a significant gesture like that to a young man who was you know going off to serve his country was a significant moment for 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 young william and hence the hesitation and was that scripted or was that something you put it in? Uh, no, I can't. Re- do you know, I can't remember. I can't remember. <laughs> but, it, but it was appropriate, put it that way. Yeah. So as we're talking to Hugh, his memoir is called Playing Under the Piano from Downton to Darkest Peru. That line from Darkest Peru refers, of course, to the book series turned film Paddington. It's about a family adopting a vagabond bear. It's a beloved children's book in the UK and was made into an extremely popular film and sequel. Here's a clip. Uh, I just need to add something to my home insurance policy. Well, what it is, is we have a guest for the night, uh, a bear, and I just needed some extra cover for any... Yes, a bear. No, a real one. About three foot six. Grizzly? Not particularly. Mind you, I haven't seen him in the mornings. (laughs) <laughs> in Paddington, you play the dad, who's a bit of a curmudgeon. In acting terms, it would be the straight man. Mm-hmm. But your lines get a lot of laughs, and that seems like a fine line for an actor to walk. <laughs> was it hard to play that role? Uh, it was. It was a delight, particularly that's that was a quote from the from the first film, and we spent a lot of time improvising around an already delicious script and and uh, coming up with some uh, you know some fresh takes. 
But yes, Mr. Mr. Brown starts off as a very conservative, literally dressed in the sort of greys and blues of a conservative man, and then gradually, as as the bear's influence on the family life <clears throat> takes effect, uh, in the end we see him in a red T-shirt on the roof of a of the National uh, Natural History Museum defending uh, Paddington's life. Um, so he goes, uh, yeah, he goes from curmudgeon to uh, action man. <laughs> it was fun uh. to play. And Paddington Bear had a meeting with Queen Elizabeth uh, for her jubilee earlier this year. That was very poignant, um, of course, and it showed what a magnificent sport Her Her Majesty was. Uh, Yes, so the bear went to have tea with the Queen for her jubilee, two national treasures, dare I say. And uh, it was revealed that the Queen kept her marmalade uh, sandwich in her her purse. I actually think we have a bit of it. Um, Perhaps you would like a marmalade sandwich. I always keep one for emergencies. So do I. I keep mine in here. For later. The party is about to start, Your Majesty. Happy Jubilee, ma'am. Thank you for everything. That's very kind. What listeners could not see there was, as what you were saying, the queen pulling a marmalade sandwich out of her purse. (laughs) What was the reaction to that sketch in the UK? I have to say it was absolutely extraordinary. It was huge. Um, And, of course, took on an added poignancy only a matter of weeks later when Her Her Majesty passed away. And the you know, the little Paddington teddy bears became a, a symbol and a sort of gesture. And there were so many, there were hundreds and hundreds of them left at the gates of, of the palaces around the country. So, um, but I mean, the, the affection in which Paddington is held, I think, reflected the affection with which uh, Her Majesty, her sense of duty and, and service to the country over 70 years was quite remarkable. Um, and that little sketch that <laughs> just seemed to encapsulate something rather magical about that summer, about that uh, jubilee, and then, of course, about that rain, uh, mm-hmm. latterly. Do you remember uh, reading Paddington as a child? Like what your encounter, what was that like for you? Well, he was very close to me because it was the first uh, set of stories that I could read for myself once I was able to read. So Paddington was my friend, my bear. Um, and I was rather nervous of what, you know, what, what might happen to him in the hands of some Hollywood producer. But in fact, I think the result is, uh, has been even more charming. As Michael Bond, who created Paddington, said uh, when he saw the first film, I came, I saw, I was conquered. <laughs> well, and perhaps introduced a whole new generation to Paddington across the world. Too. Oh, for sure, for sure. Um, and that's been a, a real treat to, to know that a new generation are coming across his books. Michael, you know, Michael Bond, who passed away on the last day of filming of, the, of Paddington, Paddington too, um, you know, he, he wrote new Paddingtons all the time, and uh, and Paddington's spirit of adventure, his spirit of inquiry, and his courtesy and his decency, I think, is a, a wonderful role model for, for for young children to engage with. Uh, you know, his sense of fun and and um, as I say, spirit of inquiry is um, is, is is a you know, it's just all for for all to enjoy. Are you surprised or maybe not at sort of the universal story of Paddington and how much that resonates across uh, languages as people, as you think about the international reaction to the films? Uh, no, because I think, again, as the way, the way A, the, the, the original Michael Bond character um, uh, is open to, he was a refugee, uh, 
and uh, Michael Bond's inspiration, of course, was uh, you know the, 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 all the the um, evacuees on the stations of, of Britain um, with little mess, you know, little cardboard um, boxes around their necks in the Second World War, the gas masks, and uh, and the sense of separation. And the, and Paddington is, I think, we've all been Paddington, you know, on our first day at a new school. Uh, or our first day in a new country, or, you know, indeed, uh, God help us if we've been, you know, refugees. You know, you are looking for the hand of friendship. You're looking for others to help you and, and show the kindness of humanity. And uh, I think that obviously resonates around the world. The spirit of Paddington, um, you know, we can all recognize. Um, and the kindness of humanity, you know, uh, bring, you know is, is brought out best um, when we help each other. And that's what uh, Paddington tries to do. We've got lots of listener questions, so I want to try to get to mm. one just before this break. Um, Mary says, compliments for Downton Abbey from hi- from history to family, romance, and acting. Thank you for this great show. And asks, how did you feel about going off the rails and being tempted by that maid? <laughs> oh, yes, in season two, the naughty, yes, the, yes, the, um, Lord Grantham being um, taunted by or teased by the maid. And um, uh, very aristocratic. Well, I, all I can say is if, if, if Walls could talk, that uh, Highclere Castle, where it was uh, filmed, has its own interesting history uh, from back in the day. So uh, uh, anyway, he got back on the straight and narrow, thank goodness. <laughs> and then, yeah, Lady Cora was slightly tempted later on. So swings and roundabouts. And Highclere Castle is itself a character in this. Oh, it's the most significant character, I'd say. You know, we all knew that uh, all of us were dis- indispen- or dispensable, but the castle was indispensable. That was the, the rock through which, uh, you know, um, on which everything else is built. I'm speaking with Hugh Monaville, actor of stage and screen and author of the new book, Playing Under the Piano, From Downton to Darkest Peru. You're listening to 1A. This is 1A. Let's get back to our discussion with Hugh Bonneville, actor of stage and screen. His new memoir is Playing Under the Piano, From Downton to Darkest Peru. Hugh, I feel like I have to bring this up because people have made this connection for us so much. Our show is 1A. You were in a BBC office comedy called W1A. Here's a clip. So with that in mind, I thought it might be interesting, maybe illuminating, who knows, just to start by asking everyone in this room to write down yes. to write down one word. This is so cool. We love this. Uh, okay, no. One word. I'm sorry. Yes, one word. Turquoise. No, I haven't started yet. Okay. Just write down yeah. one word that... The first thing that yeah, sure. the first thing that comes into your mind when you hear the word BBC. Okay, so it's not actually a word. Okay, yeah. Just write it. that word down, then fold it up so no one can see it. Okay, go. Right. Okay, you've got thirty seconds. Can you have smells? Smells. Yeah, sure. You know, like the smell of the building when you're coming in the morning. I don't know what it is. Is it the smell of success, Tracy? No, it's not that, Simon. It's more like some sort of detergent or something. I don't know. You can have whatever you want. No, sure. Just... You can have whatever you want. It's cool. <laughs> so this is one of those, uh, it's like The Office satires about middle management, a mockumentary. How did the BBC management feel about you poking fun at them? Well, it was extraordinary. This show grew out of another show called 2012, which itself was a, a sort of a satire on management speak against the backdrop of the Olympic Games of 2012. And then my character, Ian Fletcher, who clearly made such a success of the Olympic Games, was then asked to go in and firefight at the BBC, whose zip code is W1A, hence the uh, the title of the show. And um, uh, strangely, I mean, wonderfully, the BBC didn't bat an eyelid and they never had any concerns about the show at all, apart from the only time that there was any inter- editorial interference 
was there was one episode, and there's a there's a presenter of a show called Top Gear, or was a presenter of a show called Top Gear, called Jeremy Clarkson, who's a larger than life character on British uh, in British broadcasting and journalism, and doesn't take any prisoners, and was often getting into hot water for various reasons. And so the joke of this particular episode was that every time Jeremy appeared um, on a, a screen within the show, uh, he, he had to be pixelated, and every time his word his name was mentioned, it was bleeped. Um, like you know, and um, and the BBC sort of got, the editorial team got got wind of this and said, "Could you please unpixelate him and and unbleep him because otherwise it might look like we we're trying to censor the show." And um, they completely completely missed the point of the joke, you know. <laughs> so that was uh, that was all, all that was in itself quite doubly one a because it was sort of life imitating art imitating life. It was just eating itself really. And I think in the end we uh, we were you know John Morton, our producer, director, writer was able to uh, do what he originally intended. But no, they really left us alone, and um, we filmed in the building. The BBC building in, in central London, and um, you know, confused the heck out of all the journalists and people working in the building. But it was a it was a lot of fun. Um, we have a request from Kathleen in Pittsburgh. Please tell us there will be more W one A. Any plans? <laughs> well, I think no. I think it's actually come come that has in its in it, in that form come to an end. But there may yet be another adventure for Ian Fletcher on the horizon. But let's see. Okay. Uh, You can keep tweeting your questions. Uh, You can tweet us at 1A. Uh, We got this email from Peter. Has Hugh ever ridden a Bonneville? Ah, um, yes. Well, you, uh, yes, the Triumph Bonneville. Actually, I have in Paddington. There's a flashback moment when uh, Mr. Brown and, and you see Mr. and Mrs. Brown back in the day when they were young and carefree. And uh, I'm riding a Triumph Bonneville. So we were just having this discussion over the break. In the UK, Bonneville is a bike, but here it's a car. Yeah, well, there's the there's Bonneville Ponte. Is it the Pontiac? I can't I think remember so. something like that. Um, yeah, and so I'm I'm waiting for the free either bike or car. I don't mind to arrive, and I'll happily or endorse both. it or both, maybe both, <laughs> and I'll happy happily endorse them. <laughs> Your early experiences of acting were when you were a child, which is where uh, the name of this memoir comes from. You'd hide under a piano and perform by yourself. Hmm. Do you feel like your desire to perform was always in you? I think so. You look back at your life and you can see all these threads that connect. But at the time, you don't know whether you're turning left or right and don't have any great game plan. But I did enjoy, you know, the dressing up box that we had in the airing cupboard. Um, I was the youngest of three. Uh, my next sibling up was six years older. So, so I, you know, I spent quite a lot of time on my own. I wasn't lonely, but I spent a lot of time alone um, and playing with my friends in the, you know, from up the street. But they wanted to play football soccer and um i wanted to you know prance around in in uh, in my grandmother's first hole and stuff which says a lot about me i think <laughs> um and uh, so i used to cajole them into coming and being in my little playlets that i'd created i was the star obviously and they were my servants and that sort of thing maybe i was training for downton abbey i don't know um and uh, it was always there that that interest in in performing and, and making basically making up stories and characters that was always there and an interest in directing uh, well, clearly, I was bossing my friends around, uh, you know, from up the street. But uh, uh, no, I think no direct. You know, directing. Some people say that directing is making a hundred decisions before breakfast, and I, I, I'm, you know, I, I'm too tired in the morning. So, uh, no, I enjoy being part of a of a team. You know, working on a show, be it on stage or on screen. But I think actually being in charge of them. Oh no, that's like herding cats. Were your parents supportive when you told them that you wanted to be an actor? They were cautiously supportive. They were from a medical background themselves and had absolutely no connection with the entertainment industry. So they were worried on, not worried, but they were cautious on my behalf because, you know, we all knew obviously that it was a precarious profession. But 
they'd been you know massively supportive of, of my enjoyment of acting as a teenager and then at university I um I, I did a lot of amateur plays and just thought well maybe I'll give it a go um and see if I can uh, have a go and and I gave myself I was realistic I said I'd give myself three years to get the union ticket that you needed in those days and if I don't get that then I'll go off and get a proper job and then they were supportive of that because they'd seen my passion for it and my enjoyment of it and um had enjoyed watching me so they said well you know we're right behind you so I'm imme- immensely grateful to them and you got your equity card within the first couple of months you write about that yeah yeah I, um, I went to drama school and, and sort of dropped out I was just doing a postgrad year but then uh, I got offered my this elusive equity card and uh, so I went off and understudied an actor called Rafe Fines, and he was playing Lysander in A Midsummer Night's Dream. I wasn't even a fairy in the production. I just sat at the back hitting a bit of, you know, bashing a cymbal when the Queen of the Fairies came on. But uh, it was a great uh, a great start to my career, and I learned a lot there. As you mentioned, you write about your father in this book, uh, his influence on you, his later diagnosis with dementia before he passes away. How much of your own father is in some of these roles that you play, whether it's Lord Grantham or Mr. Brown? Ah, that's an interesting point. I've, you know, I've never been asked that and I've never thought about that. But I suppose genetically, inevitably, in te- and in terms of temperament, perhaps. Psychically. Uh, <laughs> psychically, yes. Um, my father was a very good-natured man. Lord Grantham's a good-natured man. Um, he had a great sense of humor, my dad, a real twinkle in the eye. And he was a, a, a perfect gentleman right to the end, even when the dementia took hold. He he never lost uh, – we were very fortunate. He never lost that element of his personality, uh, whereas, of course, you know, it, it can so often change a person. Alzheimer's and dementia, and um, so I think that uh, that sense of of, of, of courtesy and, and, and respect, he used to res- he respected hugely anyone who had any talent, and um, uh, if, if be it a be it a you know a, a plumber or a or a, a pilot, you know he'd, he'd say they're expert in their field, they're first rate, and he he thought everyone was just marvellous, and uh, they were probably crooks some of them, but anyway he had a, he he looked benevolently on people, and certainly Lord Grantham on the whole tries to do that for example and i think mr brown once he's over his suspicions is the same and i think probably it's in my nature too we got a comment from bill in largo florida i thoroughly enjoyed hugh and downton and recently saw him play a serial killer in a great british mystery series what a switch and he pulled it off brilliantly and i will say your range as an actor is quite extensive this is i imagine they're talking about the new netflix film i came by it's a thriller here's a clip of you in character as sir hector blake Cricket, the gentleman's game, a sport built on the foundations of fair play. When I was a High Court judge, everyone said, Sir Hector Blake always goes into bat for what's fair. To defend the morals and values that lie at the heart of our society with decency, honesty and integrity. But what are those values today? Youths are all bored senseless spending their days pulling pranks, vandalizing property, taking their anger out on people like me. And what for? To prove a point? You know, my school cricket master once taught us something quite valuable. He said the best form of defense is attack. Perhaps we're about to reach that stage of our innings. (laughs) <laughs> so Sir Hector Blake is not Mr. Brown <laughs> or the Earl of Grantham. What is it like? This is a completely different, complex 
bad guy character. Yeah, it was great. And um, in fact, when I read it, uh, it's by a wonderful Iranian director, writer called Babak Anvari. And uh, it's a fascinating script. I, I was absolutely gripped by it because it starts off in one direction and suddenly it turns left and you, th- you think, hey, I didn't see that coming. And um, and it's a character that uh, was intriguing to play, I must say. When I asked my I said to my agent when I'd read the script, I mean, I loved it. I said, well, you know, well, why do you think I should do it? And she said, well, because it hasn't got a blooming Labrador in it. It hasn't got a blooming bear. <laughs> and um, uh, it was it was it was great to play. Uh, and he is a very unsettling character. He's a high court judge with a difference. Let's put it that way. I don't know. Spoilers. <laughs> do you feel like is it is it? more emotionally taxing to play characters like that than sort of the nice guys or actually no i think uh funnily enough you know the devil always has the best tunes let's put it that way and the joy well i think the interesting thing about this particular character is that is that is that phrase the banality of evil evil is our next door neighbor can be our next door neighbor not necessarily i don't mean sorry i don't mean that to <laughs> my, my your next, next door, door neighbor, neighbor. <laughs> i love my next door neighbor but um you know the fact is that sheer evil can be in the person you least expect it to be, and therefore they appear to be utterly normal. And um, uh, so that actually was quite fun to play, and uh, not in this case wasn't too, too challenging. One thing that uh, I appreciate about this memoir is you capture a lot of the, I guess I would say the banality of being on a set and just <laughs> waiting around, and how much I think those of us who are not actors tend to think it's a very glamorous life. Hmm. Now, most of it is, as well, as, as the industry phrase, hurry up and wait. You know, you're called because all production teams are incredibly nervous that you're going to get, you know, wander off and get lost. So they make sure that all actors are there from the crack of dawn. And then you just wait all day until, uh, you know, something eventually, uh, you're eventually called on set. And then you're asked to, you know, focus. And uh, that's, the, that's the discipline of being a screen actor is being able to turn it on when it matters and yet maybe, uh, you know, tread water for hours on end. On stage, it's a very different thing because obviously you're releasing the releasing the hair out of the trap at, uh, you know, 7.30 in the evening and, and you're going on this journey and coming down at 10.30 at night, whatever it may be, you're telling a single story in, a, in an arc with, a, with an audience. And that's a very special and, and different experience to, to making a film or a TV show. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of hanging around and waiting, and um, and obviously you know the, the whole nature of auditions and you know so I, so I well we, we we talked earlier about how this isn't a doesn't pretend to be a, a, an acting manual because I you know it's more it's um, as I say more a collection of stories. But along the way, I do talk about the nature of auditions and the nature of rejection and how as an actor you just have to accept that and um, put up with it and, and and have your thick your thick armor on and hope that the arrows of rejection don't pierce the armor too, <laughs> too harsh. Is it? I imagine it's also different being on stage, having the audience. Is that a big part of uh, the energy of that as you're performing? Definitely. And I can again, I can remember as a child in the first one of the first plays I did in front of my schoolmates, and uh, it was a, a character who actually addressed the audience. And uh, seeing all these faces upturned, looking at me and following the story, a I thought, wow, this is fun. All my, all my, you know, all my peer group are actually looking at me for once or you know taking in what I'm saying but that shared experience is what I mean I think that's that's a very profound thing and the fact that you know you're on your metal you have to be on your metal you have to be present and, and alert and as Dame Judi Dench you know uh, says famously um, the great thing about theatre is that tomorrow you can get it right um, so it's always work in progress you're always 
kept on your toes, and uh, and that's a great uh, that's a great feeling. We say that about live radio too. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> Get it right tomorrow. Uh, a comment from Benuto on Twitter: uh, Was there any Lord Grantham dialogue that we can credit to you, Hugh? And he said, "By the way, my daughter's name is Marigold because of Downton, and she's now five. Oh, that's a very oh well, that's a lovely uh, tribute to uh, to the show. Thank you. Um, I can honestly say I don't think there there are any lines down to me. Um, it is all from the hands of Julian Fellows. I mean, there might have been a few tweaks here and there when often when you're trying to learn lines and 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 if there's if there's if they're finding a line hard to learn it's usually because there's something wrong with the line not just because you're being lazy and uh i call them speed bumps where there's something that's just nagging and you can't quite work it out and then it might be that the the word is the wrong way around or the the tense doesn't quite make sense and and so you know because we had enormous respect for julian i mean sometimes you you get scripts where you think oh i'll just change that line no one's going to notice but you do that at your peril with julian fellows because he's you know he's spent <laughs> weeks if not months working on these uh, this dialogue and um, you know at some occasionally i'd i'd contact him and say look this this speech just doesn't feel quite right because of x y or z and he'd have a look at it and maybe address it again but no i wouldn't uh, i i wouldn't uh, take his lines and just you know mince them up <laughs> what was it like to come back filming, um, doing the movies after the pandemic. I imagine that was a different experience for all of you all. It was. And actually, I found it rather moving, uh, to be honest, because, you know, so many thousands of my colleagues weren't able to work. And and we were coming back knowing that we had this script that had, I thought, a delicious tone, the second film particularly, um, that was pure escapism. And you know, I'd been going up that driveway to Highclere Castle on and off for 10 or 11 years. And uh, I never took it for granted. But And every time I drove up that, that, that lane, um, the hairs came up on the back of my neck because I could think what a great office to go to work in. But after the pandemic, it meant, meant even more the year that we were so lucky to be there. Thanks again, Hugh, for joining us. Today's show was produced by James Morrison and edited by Matthew Simonson. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is What Act.